1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this morning, we're going to talk about a very important subject in the Bible. We're going to be talking about the Exodus. And for those of you who are newer to the Bible, and for those of us that are not newer to the Bible, been around for a little while, let me just give you a few reminders. You'll remember that God's people, the children of Israel, were being held in bondage in Egypt. Egypt, of course, was the world power at that period of time. That world power was led by a man by the name of Pharaoh. He was a, a, an evil ruler who defied God. And as you go back in Israel's history during this period of time, day in and day out, those people were slaves to evil taskmasters. And then ultimately, God delivered them out of their bondage, or He brought them out. That's what Exodus means, bringing out. He brought them out by the blood of the Passover lamb. And God's design was to bring them out of Egypt so that He could bring them into another land, into the land of Canaan. Now, what's interesting about what I just shared with you is... In the Bible, more column inches are given to that story than any other story in the entire Bible. Which, of course, would make you go, now why would, why would God go to all of that detail and bring us through that chapter after chapter after chapter? And the reason is this. This is on your study sheet. The Exodus is not just a portion of Israel's history. The Exodus is not just a portion of Israel's history. The Exodus is a portrait of the Christian life. You see, that Exodus back in Moses' day was just a picture of a much greater Exodus because, you see, Israel is a picture of the believer before coming to Jesus Christ because what the New Testament reveals is that we were in bondage. All of us that know the Lord as our Savior this morning, some of you have not yet come to that point, and so this is still a reality in your life, but we were in bondage in Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world, the world's system and all of its sin. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that world power, is a picture of Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 calls him the God of this, what? The God of this world. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26, what it says about Satan, before we came to Jesus Christ, he held us captive at his will in the same way that Pharaoh, that wicked ruler, was holding God's people in bondage in that same way. All of us were in bondage to this world and its system and the God of this world, Satan, as we were being held by the evil taskmaster of sin. And what God did is He brought us out. We had an exodus. He brought us out the same way that He brought the children of Israel out in their history. He brought us out by the blood of the Passover lamb. John was on the the seashore one day. He looked up and said, Behold the... The Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, and every Jew would have understood and would have made the connection. Whoa! The Passover Lamb is actually here. We have been delivered from the enslaving power of Satan and the evil taskmaster of sin in our life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
What God actually does in this passage is He gives us a commentary on what we just talked about. He gives us a commentary on the Exodus. And and listen as God begins to give the play-by-play here in verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, now let's just stop there. I'm cruising through, and so you probably didn't notice it, but every verse that we just read has a very key word in it. It's the word all. The word all. Look at it. He says that they were all, all the children of Israel, they were all under the cloud. And you remember the way that God guided them, the way that God led them at this period of time, was there was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That all of them were under the cloud. They had all experienced God's guidance. He says they all passed through the sea. That is, they had all experienced God's deliverance. As they came to the Red Sea, what that was, it was the final break where they left that old life and they left Egypt. So he says that they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized unto Moses, he said. They had all experienced not only God's guidance, not only God's deliverance, but they had also experienced God's power because through their baptism unto Moses, their old master, Pharaoh, was dead and buried, and it's the same thing for us in Romans chapter 6. It talks about our baptism, our spiritual baptism into Christ, where we are dead to sin. The old master has been removed. It's, it's died. And then notice next, they did all eat the same spiritual meat. And he's talking there about the manna that God provided for them. And they did all drink the same spiritual drink. That was the water from the rock. And he tells us, that the rock was not just like Christ, not just a picture of Christ, but the rock what? The rock was Christ. And so here is a group of people that experienced not only God's guidance and deliverance and power, but also God's provision. The manna, the spiritual meat, and the spiritual drink, the water from the rock. So I want want you to make sure you got it. What this group of people actually experienced was God's wonderful guidance, His miraculous deliverance, His power, and His provision. I mean, hey, y'all, what more could you ask for than that? I'm telling you, man, to have God so at work in your life like that. But watch where it left them, verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, guys, I'm just telling you, that's the weirdest thing I've ever read in my life. I mean, that's, that's craziness. They were all the recipients of God's delivering power. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. And if, listen, if you go back and you do the math on that many, you know what God's saying through the many? Most. 
most of them. God was not pleased with them. Why? Because they were overthrown in the wilderness. Listen. After experiencing God's guidance, His delivering power, His power exercised in their life, and then even the provision of God. They were out in the wilderness, disillusioned, disappointed, disenchanted with it all, and the fact is they died before they ever really tapped in to what that exodus was really all about. And you know what's so crazy about that? What it says in verse 6. Now these things were... What's the next word? Our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Look at verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples and they are written for our admonition. And you know what God's saying here, y'all? And, 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 and I want to make sure that you don't miss this because this is a very, very sobering thing if I'm understanding this right. What God is saying here in verse 6 and in verse 11, He is saying, I'm reminding you of this. And I've placed all of that back there in the Bible. I've done all of that not just so that I could give you the record of Israel's history and how they were brought out of that land. What God is saying is, this is for you. I'm telling you this so that what happened to them doesn't happen to you. And if I'm reading this right, based on the fact of what happened to the children of Israel who are a picture of us, the believer in Jesus Christ, God appears to be saying that most of you most of us will come to the place to where we've experienced God's guidance in leading us to His delivering power and will even know of His provision, but will die disillusioned, disappointed, disenchanted, and overthrown in the wilderness of life, never really experiencing what the exodus of our salvation was really all about. I don't know what that does to you. <laughs> Takes me way back. You know what? I'd love to do that to some of y'all. <laughs> It would probably wake some of you up for about five minutes or so. I, I, you know what? The reason I did is I was about to fall asleep myself. But, but you know, you, you come through all of that and you say, how in the world can that be? I'm looking at a, a packed outhouse. 
I'm, I'm looking at hundreds and hundreds of people this morning that this morning, most of the people in this room, you've experienced everything that the children of Israel did. You know God's guidance. It brought you to the point to where He delivered you out of the bondage of your sin. You have tasted of the manna. You have drank from the rock. You've been well provided for. But chances are good. By the time the final chapter is written, unless something happens somewhere along the way to intersect our lives, chances are real good. We will be just like them. And so I want to ask you today, listen real good. Because maybe today is the day that God does want to intersect your life. Bring you to the place to where maybe you are one who will learn from the admonition. And maybe you'll be one that will receive the instruction so that you are not overthrown in the wilderness. And again, the question, how does this happen? Why does this happen? I mean, after we've experienced this exodus and we've been released from the bondage of, of our sin, how in the world could we ever come to the point to where in our Christian life we're displeasing to the Lord and we never really tap into the victory? And there is a very, very simple answer. It's so simple that most people miss it. Because, quite honestly, most people don't realize what God is trying to communicate in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about if you don't listen real carefully and if you don't receive the admonition, you're going to end up just like them. And so most people never go back to see what it was that actually caused them never to live in the victory that God designed for them. And you know what the, the, the simple answer to this thing is? They missed the purpose for the exodus. Listen, God did not do that whole blood of the Lamb thing so that they could be released from Pharaoh's bondage. God did not do that so that they would no longer have the taskmasters making their life difficult. God brought them out of Egypt to bring them in to Canaan. You see what I'm talking about? It's so simple. Most people miss it. But in what I just said is the same reason that most people, most Christians, will go their whole life and die overthrown in the wilderness because we don't understand what our exodus was really all about. It was not just to bring us out of Egypt. It was to bring us into Canaan. You don't get it, do you? It, it doesn't wow you, does it? Okay, and that's why we're at this point in the message. Because we still have a little ways to go. 
I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I want you to hear God say this. I mean, it's one thing for me to make that conclusion myself, and here's what I think, saints. Who cares? Let's, let's let God tell us. Now, I'm starting with God recounting this for us. This is at the end of the story, but he's looking back and saying, Here, here's what the thing has always been about. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he's talking about you know, teaching your kids and, and, and telling them all of the things that, that God ha- had done. And let's pick up in verse 20. And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, Okay, and what he says here is, Tell him about the Exodus. We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore, upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon his household before our eyes. Here it is. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. In the words of the New Testament, y'all, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, He delivered us from the power of darkness. Wonderful! And hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. You see, He brought us out... To bring us in, in the words of Acts chapter 26 and verse 18. He brought us out of the darkness to bring us in to the light. In the same verse, he says that he brought us and turned us from the power of Satan unto the power of God. It wasn't just to release you from the bond that you were in of your sin and of Pharaoh. He turned us to the power of God. Now listen, y'all, the purpose of our salvation was not just to get rid of our sin. It wasn't just to get an angry God off of our back. It wasn't just to make us acceptable for heaven. The purpose of our salvation is so we could be brought out of that. So we could be brought in to the fullness of what life in Christ is all about. Go to Exodus, or turn back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is at the beginning of this whole thing. Now, I just took you to to the end as God's recounting what the Exodus was all about. This is before the Exodus. This is when God is telling Moses what he's going to do at the burning bush. This is Exodus chapter 3, and verse 8. He says, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, what God is saying is... What is in my heart, the desire of my heart, is not only to release the children of Israel from the bondage of their slavery, 
But it's to exchange that land, the land of Egypt, for that land, the land of Canaan, the land that is flowing with milk and honey. Now, does anybody think that in that land they came to rivers and, Wow, Martha, look at that. Look at the milk, would you? Mmm, hey, just reach out and grab... Anybody think that was literally milk and honey? That is just God's way of saying, I want to bring you into a land that will satisfy your soul. This is a land that flows with milk and honey. Go to the next book, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 25. In verse 38, God says, I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, so that you no longer would be under the bondage of Pharaoh. Is that what he says? To give you the land of Canaan. I love this. And to be your God. And what I'm wanting you to see this morning is over and over again, wherever you slice it, God says the same thing. I brought you out of Egypt to bring you in to Canaan. Now, let let me give you what is a, a biblical illustration of the message that God's trying to give to us here. The illustration of marriage. Okay, as you begin to go to the, to the New Testament and you see what this thing of marriage is actually all about, what you find out is that marriage is actually a picture of the Christian life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, what God says to us, or Paul is, is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, I have espoused you to one husband. This relationship, this Christian life thing, he relates to it as a marriage in Ephesians. Chapter 5, verse 22, he begins and he talks to wives and he talks to husbands and he's talking about all of the responsibilities and the way that this marriage thing works. And then he comes down to the end of the chapter and he says, now now listen, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In other words, I've been talking about this, this marriage and this relationship and your responsibilities all along, but what I want you to know is I'm really talking to you about Christ in the church. And we've just come through this ground in Revelation chapter 19 that the lamb has a wife, has a bride and that is of course the the church, okay? Christ in in the Bible is the bridegroom and the the church is the bride. And as you begin to see how God explains how marriage actually works, the way that he says it is that it involves two things. In, in Genesis chapter 2, He tells us this. He repeats it over in Ephesians chapter 5. It involves two things. One is negative and one is positive. Number one, it involves leaving. Number two, it involves what, y'all? It involves cleaving. Okay, here's a a young lady, and she's going to be getting married this week. And so she's 
on the, the typical I'm getting married this week buzz, okay? And so she's all hyped and all of that. And as you listen to her talk, man, here she goes. Listen. I'm so excited about this. Do you realize on Saturday, I'm leaving home? I get to leave home. I finally, after all of these years, it's come to this. I get to leave home. Now, I'm just telling you, if I'm marrying that girl, I'm having second thoughts, man. (laughs) Because if all she wants to do is get out of something... I'm not sure I'm too interested in getting into that. I'm getting close to being married for 25 years. We have our big 25th wedding anniversary, and I stand up to give a word of testimony. And I'd just like to say this. 25 years ago today, I left home. And I'll tell you something else, I haven't been back since. (laughs) It's been 25 years, and I thank God for being able to leave home. Now, if I go sit down after that word of testimony, y'all, that may be the end of that marriage. (laughs) Because, listen... You leave in marriage. You leave your father and mother so you can get to what marriage is really all about. It ain't leaving. You leave so that you can cleave. And that's what it's really all about. And yet you hear... People in testimony meetings stand up and say, Yes, I'd just like to say a good word. 25 years ago this month, the good Lord saved my soul. Amen. And you know what I want to say? So what? Because that was the testimony of the children of Israel. And God wasn't pleased. Some of us, that's what we got. We left. (laughs) Woo! I'm not going to hell when I croak. And that's cool. But that's not what it's all about. That's not the essence of the Christian life. He brought you out of that so that He could bring you in to the fullness of all that God has for you into the fullness of what life in Christ is all about. And God says, that's why I brought Israel out of Egypt because I wanted to bring them in to Canaan. And most of you know this. But do you realize how long of a journey it actually was from Egypt Canaan. Would you turn to go through Numbers to the right and then go to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. 
And look at verse, look at verse 2. He says, There are eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. Now, just so that you'll get your bearings here, Horeb is where God met Moses at the burning bush. It's Egypt. It's where the children of Israel were. Kadesh Barnea is the southern tip of the land of Canaan. When they got to Kadesh Barnea, God says, enter in. Okay? God says that it was a journey that should have lasted, count them, 11 days. You know how long the journey actually was? Look at verse 3. And it came to pass in the 40th year. The 11 day journey actually took them 40 years. The actual distance on this journey was just a little bit less than 300 miles. That's all it was from Horeb to Canish Barnea, from Egypt into the land that God wanted to bring. All of this Exodus thing, all of the bringing them out was to bring them into that, and it was an 11 day journey, less than 300 miles. And so you know what it means, actually, when you do the math on the thing? You know how far they actually traveled in, in a day's time? 36 yards. About the distance from where I am to those doors back there. In a week's time, they went two and a half football fields. 250 yards. A day. Do you realize that a snail <laughs> goes faster than that? That is no joke. Now, obviously, they didn't go like this. What they did is they spent 40 years going around in circles. And the question is, what was God doing during those 40 years? Would you have loved to have gotten in His head? What was, what was going on? What was, what was His mode of operation during the, the 40 years that they're spending this time wandering around in, in, in circles? Well, God tells us what His mode of operation was in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 21. Nehemiah 9, 21 says, Yea... Forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness. And what I want you to note here, and just file in your head, we're going to talk about it. He sustained them. But one thing he did not do, that was just to wake up the people that sleep every week. One thing he did not do, he did not satisfy them. He sustained them. But He did not satisfy them. Now, how was it that God actually sustained them in the wilderness? And do you realize if they were going to spend 40 days there, God would have had to do that? Because we are talking about the Sinai Desert. We're talking about a place that is not the land flowing with milk and honey. There's nothing there. And if God didn't sustain them, they couldn't have made it. I mean, they, they wouldn't have lasted any length of time, much less 
40 years. And how was it that God sustained them? He gave them manna. They would wake up, the scripture says in Exodus chapter 16, they'd wake up every morning with, literally, bread from heaven on the ground. And that's how they were sustained. Now, something that's very important to note is that in in John chapter 6, Jesus is in a conversation with the religious leaders of his day, and the subject comes up about this manna, about this bread from heaven. And in the conversation, what the religious leaders say is, hey, you know, Moses, uh, our father, you know, he provided bread for his followers. And Jesus says, "Uh, pardon me, I uh, I think you've made a little mistake there. That wasn't Moses, your father, that did that. That was my father that did that. That's not your people. That's my people. (laughs) You made a little mistake here. That was my father that provided that. And I want you to know something. God's providing true bread right now. And they said, come on with it. Give us this bread. You remember what he said? I am the living bread. And you know what the whole passage is all about? He is telling us that He is, just like we saw just a minute ago, that the rock that followed them was Christ. You know what He's telling them? The manna that they had in the wilderness was Christ. He is the true bread. He's letting us know that it was a picture of him. And let me just take a, a, a quick second here to show you how the manna was Christ in the wilderness. Turn back to the book of Exodus for a second. And we're going to do this real quickly. So just buckle in and write furiously. Exodus chapter 16. Now, the whole subject here is about this this bread from heaven, this manna. And look look at the middle of verse verse 12, Exodus 16. Look in the middle of verse 12. God tells Moses that in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And now watch this. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. And certainly they would have known that he was God just by virtue of the miracle. Because do you realize we're talking about... Enough bread to feed two million people? (sighs) Hey, y'all, there's lots of bread on the ground. Those who have done the math on on this talk about the fact that it would be four freight trains of 60 cars each filled with bread. So they would have looked at that and said, Whoa, I I think God's at work here. And we know that from John chapter 6, this bread was to show them who God is. This bread is a picture of Jesus. And watch how he explains who he is. Look at verse 15. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, It is uh, manna. You know what manna means? What is it? Have you ever eaten that? I've been to Bible college, y'all. I've eaten manna a lot of times. Put that in front and go, what is that, man? And, and verse 15 says that they, that's what they, they called it. For they wished not what it was. In other words, they couldn't 
explain it. And you know what that is, y'all? It's exactly what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. What mystery is that, Paul? God was manifest in the flesh. Manna is a picture of who Christ is, that He is God manifest in the flesh. God in a body. God in human flesh. That's why in the communion we, we hold the bread in our hands because it's a picture of God becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And notice in the middle of verse 14, it, it says that it was small, as small as the, the whore or white frost on the ground. And of course, small speaks of, of Christ's humility. Though He was the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, Shekinah, glory of the Godhead, He humbled Himself to be born into the world that He Himself had created as a small little baby. This is all spelled out in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And notice also in verse 14 that it was round. Okay, And the fact that it was round speaks of His eternality. The fact that He had no beginning and He has no end. In John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, what? I am. Not I was, but I, I am. I have no beginning, I have no end. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus said to the apostle John, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty. And listen, y'all. You see, God could have made that manna any shape that He wanted to make it, but He knew it was to show us who Christ is, and so He made it round, having no beginning and no end. And notice the next thing in the middle of verse 15. It was a gift. It was a gift. Look at it. Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath Given you to eat, John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He, what? He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, The wages of sin is what? It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it was a gift. And drop down to verse 31. It was also... White, verse 31 says, And the house of Israel called the name thereof manna, and it was like coriander seed, or, or the seed of a coriander. And a coriander is a, a type of, of plant, and he's telling us the seed of this plant looked like a miniature manna. But here's the simplicity he wants us to emphasize, that it, it's white. And white, of course, speaks of his purity and righteousness. The fact that he was born of virgin birth We've talked about this before in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God prophesied that Christ would come of the seed of the woman, not of the man. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore by one, what? One man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. You see, sin wasn't passed on to Christ. He wasn't born as a sinner like you and me because he was born of the seed of the woman. You say, a woman has no seed, and that's right. She doesn't have a seed, and yet having never known a man, the angel explained it to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. That which is conceived in her is conceived of the Holy Ghost. It was a virgin birth. So, it was white. And look at the rest of verse 31. It was also 
sweet. The middle of verse 31 says, And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Psalm 34 and verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 119, verse 103, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But you see, if you're ever really going to know His sweetness, you must taste. You must take Him in. It's not enough to admire the, ma- the manna. It's not enough to respect it. It's not enough to acknowledge that it's a gift from God. You've got to eat it yourself. But you see, before you can do that, you've got to humble yourself. Look at the end of verse 14. It was on the ground. It was on the ground. So you know what you had to do to get it? You had to bow. You had to bend. You had to stoop. You know what? God could have put it anywhere He wanted. He could have just had it dangling in midair if He wanted. He could have put it on the bottoms of the trees to where you would reach up. He could have put it on the mountaintops. But you know what He did? He made it accessible to everyone. It came to where they were, but to get it, you had to stoop. And you know who could reach it best? Children. Because they didn't have as far to stoop. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in John chapter 5, you know what? Jesus is standing right there in the fullness of who He is, right at the feet of the religious leaders. And you know what Jesus says? You will not come to Me that you might have life. And you know what? There are people that are just like that today. Jesus brings you to a place like this. He begins to take His Word. He begins to reveal Himself to you. And all you have to do is submit your life to His Lordship. And you know what? Your life could be changed just like that. But the same words that Jesus spoke in John chapter 5 and verse 39 and 40... That's all there is to it. But you won't come that you might have life. You won't humble yourself to receive that gift. And notice the one last thing about the manna, and that is that it must be received early. It must be received early. Look at verse 21. And they gathered it every morning, every man according to his eating. And when the sun waxed hot, it melted. And you know what? Some of you keep thinking, you know what? One of these days, l- listen now as you're turning, listen, this is a key part. Some of you keep thinking about th- this man. You know what? One of these days, I am going to receive Christ. One of these days, I am going to taste of the Lord. One of these days, I'm going to get saved. But God tells you in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6, listen, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Because you see, when the sun became hot, the manna melted away. It was gone. And the Bible talks in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that in the very near future, the Son of Righteousness, the capital S-U-N, is going to rise on this planet. And what He's going to do is He's going to burn up 
all of his enemies. He says in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses, uh, chapter one and verse eight, he says that the Lord is going to be revealed. That flaming fire is going to be revealed from heaven and is going to burn up the people on this planet who have not obeyed the gospel of God. If you're going to get that manna, receive it early. Receive it while it's still there. Because once the sun of righteousness comes, it'll melt away. And, and so, okay, that's, that's all good. That was the manna, picture of Christ. But now, and, and I wanted you to see that. I wanted you to see that it was a picture of Christ. But now listen. And, and why is it right now that I'm, I'm, I've got this weird feeling that there's some disconnection going on here? Okay, let's pull it in here, y'all. The reason we went through all of that, and that's, oh, that's incredible. Yeah, that's, 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 that's wonderful. The manna was a picture of Christ. The thing that you've got to understand, though, is that if the manna is a picture of Christ, it is a picture of a Christ who does not satisfy. Most Christians I know have that Christ. That sustains them. Hey, if you were to ask them, have you ever been born again? Oh, yeah. Do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Oh, yeah. You, you know that the Spirit of God lives in you? Oh, yeah. They still hunger. They still hunger. You, you know why that manna didn't satisfy them? Because God never intended for the manna to satisfy them. The manna was to sustain them. Until they got into what the exodus was all about. And the whole purpose of the manna was just to sustain them on the 11-day journey. For the whole period of time they're in the wilderness, God says, okay, I'll sustain you. But I don't want you to feed the rest of your life on manna. I want you in the fullness of this land that flows with milk and honey. Go to Numbers chapter 4. Uh, Numbers chapter 11, I'm sorry. Numbers chapter 11. And look at verse 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting... And the children of Israel also wept again and said, <laughs> Who shall give us flesh to eat? I want to eat. I want to eat some ribs, man. I want to go to Red Lobster again. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely. 
you're soaked in them cucumbers and melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all beside this dirty, stinking, reeking, rotten manna before our eyes. And the manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof was the color of deadlyum. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills or beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. You know what they were trying to do? Find every way in the world possible to make this manna exciting. Oh, they crushed it. They ground it. They beat it. They baked it. They fried it. They roasted it. They put it out on their grill. They put ketchup on it. They put hot fudge on it. They, they did everything in the world to make it exciting. And you know what? It still didn't satisfy them. They cried out, Manna for breakfast and manna for lunch and manna for supper and manna birthday cakes and manna Christmas cookies and manna alive. I hate this stuff. And you know why it didn't satisfy him? Again, God didn't intend for it to. The manna was only to sustain them until they got into the land that flowed with milk and honey. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 4, you know what it says? That God fed them with manna, but allowed them to hunger. The manna was never intended to satisfy. Listen, he wanted to feed them in the land of Canaan. And so what he did is he fed them for a period of time with a substance that would sustain them but would never satisfy them because the reason they had been brought out was so that they could be brought in. And so that they would be brought in God never let them get satisfied where they were. He kept putting something inside of them that hungered for something else. Now remember, okay, now, now please listen real carefully. We started in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. And everything that I'm telling you this morning, he says this, this whole thing, it's, it's for our instruction. As we talked about, this isn't just a portion of Israel's history. This is a portrait of the Christian life. This is a picture of most Christians. We, we went through it a minute ago. You saved? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. Born again? Yeah. Got the Spirit? Yeah, got the Spirit. Let me ask you this. Do you still hunger for the things of this world? Well, <laughs> yeah. Do you still hunger for the gratification of your flesh? Do you still hunger to be recognized by this world? Yeah. You know what our life was characterized before we came to Christ? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the reason we were craving those things is because there was a spiritual vacuum inside of every single one of us. Every one of us were born spiritually dead. We, we had a hole inside of us. And so what we did is through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we tried to fill it. 
most of us are now saved. The God-shaped vacuum now has Christ living in it. But we still hunger for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And you see, we, we came to a point in our life to where we got saved. And oh my goodness, the initial buzz of that, do you remember, man? I'm telling you, I was the freest guy on the planet, man. You never met a happier teenager than this one, man. When I came out of the bondage of my sin. And what happens to every single one of us is we come out of that exodus and we've got that initial initial buzz going on and you know what we think? We think this is the Christian life. And what God does is He sustains us for a little while and, and he, he feeds us, but he, he leaves us hungering for the fullness of what salvation really is, but what most Christians do is the same thing that we saw that the children of Israel did in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Rather than hungering for His fullness, something happens to us after the buzz. And rather than our hunger bringing us into the fullness of who Christ is, we start hungering for all of the ways that we filled ourselves when we were back in Egypt. And we look back at all of that and think, I was happier lost than I am saved. And you know what? Unless we allow God to do something to intersect our life, we will be the people just like 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5 that God was not well pleased with and got overthrown in the wilderness because I think most of the people need to admit in this room yeah, this manifest presence of God that you're talking about and the knowledge of the glory of, of the Lord, you see, that's, that's Canaan. But we don't want to turn away from the things that are right now still bringing satisfaction to us. as long as we're content with being fed on this stuff you'll never get the milk and the honey that's over there you know what the manna is a picture of the manna is a picture of receiving Christ but never 
experiencing the fullness of why He saved you. And what God tells us is if you wander in this desert too long, you'll be overthrown, disillusioned, disappointed, disenchanted. You'll be like a lot of Christians, grow old, and really don't have a whole lot to do with God. But if you ask them if they're going to heaven, oh yeah. Yeah, walk the sawdust trail back in 40. Great. Wonderful. But that's not why He saved us. I wanted to take us to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. Really, we don't have the time to do it. Can I just tell you, and you can study it out on your own. Listen, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, you know what it talks about? That He took us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us in Christ and then He sealed us with the Spirit. And that is true for every believer. You know what? He's going to sustain you the rest of your life because you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've been sealed with the Spirit of God. <laughs> hip, hip, hooray! He goes on the rest of the, the book. Right there in the book of Ephesians to say, okay, now that He's... Now that He's done this, there's more that the Spirit of God wants to do in your life. He wants to bring you into the fullness of the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 That's what the thing is all about. Not just so He could seal you, but so you could live in the fullness of His Spirit. And you know what? I, I'm, 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 saying all of this, I'm saying all of this today because... I think that sometimes we come to the place to where we think, well, you know, all this manifest presence thing that you're talking about and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord thing, yeah, you know, that that, that sounds real cool. And, you know, if it happens, it happens, and, and, and that's great. And what I see in Scripture is that if that doesn't happen, the end of this story is not good. people right now that are close to God one of these days won't be unless we allow Him to take us all the way. And I want to ask you something this morning. Has there ever come a point in your life and I mean to where right now, when I say this, I mean, you can, you can take me back to this place where you said to God, God, I'm going all the way. I don't want an escape hatch from hell. I want the fullness of everything that you have. Have you ever in your life, and I'm, I'm asking you, not because we're at the close of the service, I'm asking you this because I think it is so important that every single one of us somewhere in our life come to a point of decision where we say, 
I'm going to allow God to do what He designed to do when He saved me. I don't know that I've ever met anybody that that God used in any kind of significant way that couldn't take you back to some point in their life to where they got it. I see it. And I'm going. You've heard Frank and I talk about right in the center of the state of Florida, we were in the midst of a service where God was working incredibly. That service was over, and I'm just telling you, I came to a point to where I said, Oh God, I will not let you go until you bless me. Just like Jacob. It was an oak tree. I've gone back to it since that day. It's my Bethel, if you will. And I'm just asking you, have you ever come to a point in your life to where you said, God, I get it. I wasn't saved just so that I could go to heaven. I wasn't saved just so that I could be released from the bondage of my sin. I understand it. This was all about you becoming my God and me living with the manifest presence of God in my life and knowing you. Have you ever come to that place? Let's bow our heads together. And I just wonder how many of you would say this. Let's try to keep it still as we possibly can. Nobody looking around this morning. I wonder how many of you would say, you know what, Pastor Mark? I don't, I don't know that I've ever genuinely come to that place. Would you raise your hand? I'm not sure that I've ever really come to that place. Thank you. Man, I, man, I appreciate your honesty. And I... I don't know what God's doing in your heart. And I don't, I don't have an oak tree to have you go kneel next to. But for those of you that would like to say to God today, Oh God, I've been wandering around in this wilderness And rather than allowing my hunger to take me into the fullness of all that you are, it's what's distracting me and keeping me in this wilderness. But today, I do want you to know, I'm coming to a point of decision to where I am stating to you, I want the fullness of all that you have. I want this to be my day. And if that's where you are... Why don't you just stand to your feet and let that be your oak tree today.
I want to give all of you that are standing, and I appreciate what you're allowing God to do in your heart right now, but I want to give you the opportunity right now to, to talk to God yourself. Pour yourself out before Him. And as they're praying, how many of you would say, you know, Pastor, I have come to that place in my life. And I have made that decision already. Would you raise your hand? Okay, then you can put it down. And for those of you that just raised your hand, how many of you would say, I came to that point of decision and yet I've, I've been wandering and today I've made a statement to God about that and I've dealt with that. Would you raise your hand? All right. And those of you that are standing, why don't you be seated? And Lord, I want to thank you for how you have worked in our, our midst today. And Lord, we, we want you to have your perfect will fulfilled in our life the purposes that you had in bringing us out of the bondage of our sin Lord we are asking you today and we're surrendering ourselves to your purposes and saying to you oh God bring us into the land that is flowing with milk and honey we have tasted of Christ and now Lord may we know the satisfaction that comes through living the victorious Christian life that you have called us to live. I pray that the warning that we've received from 1 Corinthians 10 in the lives of those that are right now disillusioned and disappointed and about to be overthrown, Lord, somehow I pray that the things that we've talked about today, in the coming hours of today and the days of this week and the weeks of this month, I pray that Your Word would just pound into the hearts of, of people. And Lord, may we be individuals and may we be a church that knows what it is to know the fullness of Christ and His manifest presence in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.